This is Planet Money from NPR. A couple of months ago, the 600,000-plus employees of the United States Postal Service were sent a video introducing them to their new boss. Hello, and thank you for watching. Today, I am honored to begin my service as our nation's 75th Postmaster General. That voice belongs to the new Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy. You might have heard of him by now. He was a big donor to President Trump and the Republican Party, and he was appointed by the Postal Service Board of Governors, all of whom were themselves appointed by Donald Trump. In that introductory video to all the mail carriers, DeJoy makes it clear that he thinks the Postal Service is facing all these problems. The pandemic has been bad for business for the post office. And even before that, people just don't send as many letters as they used to. And finally, we have an expensive and inflexible business model that has largely been imposed on us and that we cannot easily change. But I did not accept this position in spite of these challenges. I accepted this position because of them. Since taking over in June, DeJoy has fired or reassigned a bunch of post office executives, cut overtime way back, and maybe most controversially, called for the removal of hundreds of mail sorting machines. And all of this is happening against the backdrop of a presidential election in three months, where there's going to be an unprecedented number of ballots cast by mail. Democrats are worried that all of DeJoy's moves are going to delay the mail in a way that hurts people's chances to vote. Hi, I'm sorry. We're trying to find a place in the House that's quiet. This week, we called one of those Democrats, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, at her home in New York. We're running an office out of my home now since we're all quarantined anyway. I'm sorry. Anyway, I'm ready to go. What's up? The past couple of weeks, Maloney has been peppering DeJoy with this series of official letters demanding answers about the changes he's made. Which, can I just say, is 100% the right way to have a fight about the post office? You don't make these drastic changes in the middle of a pandemic. This is not the time to come in with actions that are disruptive to the post office that's delaying mail. Representative Maloney and other Democrats are really worried about what DeJoy's up to. They're so worried that they cut their August recess short and came back to D.C. for an emergency session. Maloney has introduced a bill that would require the post office to keep services at the same level they were at on January 1st of this year. And on Monday, she's calling Postmaster General DeJoy to a hearing of the House Oversight Committee, which she chairs. We're hearing reports they're decommissioning uh, machines that help process mail more quickly. They have taken mailboxes out. Uh, they are not allowing overtime. They've taken several steps that disrupt, basically disrupt, uh, sabotage the ability of the department to process the mail. And as we record this podcast, the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee is questioning DeJoy themselves. This uh, hearing will come to order. I want to start by thanking Postmaster General DeJoy for... As a country, we're all suddenly paying attention to the Postal Service in a way we haven't in years, which is probably long overdue. Because the United States Postal Service has been in this kind of slow motion crisis for decades. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alexi Horowitz-Ghazi. And I'm Keith Romer. The fight over the U.S. Postal Service is a lot bigger and goes back a lot further than the appointment of Louis DeJoy. It is a 50-year-old battle between public service and private enterprise. Today on the show, we try to figure out what's gone wrong with the post office and if there's any way to fix it.
Economics is about more than just charts and graphs. Mainly, it's about people. If you ever see Lincoln squinting on a penny, it's because I squeezed the crap out of it. People opening businesses, following their dreams, struggling to build something in a chaotic world. I just remember uh, downtown burning. It got real crazy real fast. On The Indicator from Planet Money, we bring you easy-to-understand explanations and human stories to help you make sense of the economy. And we do it in just 10 minutes a day. Here at LifeKit, we know that getting your financial house in order can feel painful. Now there's this whole coronavirus pandemic to deal with. Our personal finance tune-up series will help you feel more confident and get you on the right track. Listen and subscribe to NPR's LifeKit. The idea that the United States government would have a hand in delivering the mail goes back at least as far as the Constitution. For the United States Post Office, since it was founded 173 years ago, has helped to make America great. It's right there. Article 1, Section 8. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, yada, 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 and to establish post offices and post roads. And yes, people have to pay to send their letters from Philadelphia to Charleston. But there's a recognition that mail delivery is this useful service and that taxpayers should subsidize that service. The mail is going to bind the country together. It's going to keep people informed about issues of national importance. It's going to let us all communicate with each other. And for the first 150 years or so, the system works pretty well. It's a service worth paying for. And whenever the post office ends up in the red, Congress throws them the money to cover it. But by the 1960s, the postal system is kind of a mess. Rates are super low. There's a huge surge of mail. And the post office is less and less able to deal with it. At one point, there's a backlog of more than 10 million pieces of mail in the Chicago post office. Management seriously discussed just burning it all. That is one way to get to mailbox zero. In the end, they did not, in fact, burn the mail. On top of all this, postal workers are increasingly unhappy with their wages. Their unions keep asking Congress for a raise, not really getting anywhere. But there's only so much the workers can do. Because if you're a federal employee, it's actually against the law to go on strike. And then, in 1970, they go on strike anyway. We want to work, but this is the only means we have of letting Congress know that we cannot take it any longer. Either they give us what we should have, or we will stay out on strike until hell freezes over. For a few days, Richard Nixon actually sends in the National Guard to replace some of these striking workers. I have just now directed the activation of the men of the various military organizations to begin in New York City the restoration of essential mail services. Now, Nixon, and frankly, Democrats before him, really wanted to reform the post office, to do something to fix all the backlogs and the delays. For the past year, almost since the day we took office, both the Postmaster General and I have been working to alleviate not only the legitimate grievances of postal workers, but to move to eliminate the source of those grievances. That is, the obsolete postal system itself. And the strike kind of gives Nixon and Congress the chance they're looking for. In 1970, President Nixon signs the Postal Reorganization Act into law. The unions get the raise they want and the right to collective bargaining. And in exchange, they agree to go along with this other change one that fundamentally transforms the post office from a pure public service to something more like a business. To try to understand why this transformation was such a big deal, we called David Trimble from the Government Accountability Office, the GAO. 
And you guys are sort of explicitly militantly nonpartisan. Is that right? Absolutely. Our core values are, are you know, sort of uh, violently protected within the building. Who are you going to vote for for president? <laughs> yeah, that, that I will not say. <laughs> a couple months ago, the GAO put out a report that tried to make sense of how we arrived at this current moment in Postal Service history. Trimble says that 1970 law changed a lot more than just how much postal workers got paid. Until that point, the post office was a department of the uh, federal government. That old version of the post office made some of its money from stamps, but the rest of it came out of the federal budget. They received about 25% of their operating expenses in the form of an appropriation. Under the new law, that money went away. And that is where the, the, the mandate for them to be a self-sustaining business, uh, a business-like entity, I think is the phrase, uh, was introduced. The deal that Congress gives this new business-like entity goes like this. U.S. Postal Service, that's what they're called now, you get to keep all the stuff. The physical post offices and the mail trucks and the snazzy uniforms. And you get to keep the exclusive right to deliver stamped mail. But Congress is going to stop giving you money because you're a business now. Congress doesn't just give money to businesses, usually. Also, new Postal Service, we're going to need you to do something for us. Well, several things, actually. You have to deliver mail to every single address in the country. It'd be great if you could keep doing the whole six-day-a-week delivery thing. Also, you have to get permission if you want to charge more for anything. Or if you want to offer any new services. Or, like, close a post office. You're going to need permission for that, too. But otherwise, you are totally a business. Go get them. So you want them to operate a business, but you're telling them what services they have to provide, and you're telling them how much they can charge. Uh, so they're sort of um, between a rock and a hard place for a lot of their operational decisions. But for a while, this new business version of the post office actually works. People like mailing things, and they're willing to pay for it. Year after year, mail volumes just keep increasing, and the Postal Service is able to increase their rates to cover new costs, which means revenue keeps going up. But then, in the early 2000s... Email. It's cheaper, it's faster. You don't have to lick anything. First class mail delivery in the United States peaks in 2001 at 103 billion letters. And it just goes downhill from there, which is bad news for the Postal Service. The old business, the old model, you know, really depended on a high volume of first class mail because that's the, that's the moneymaker for the post office. That same year, 2001, the GAO puts the Postal Service on its high-risk list, which is basically a warning that if mail volume doesn't start going up again, the post office is going to be in real danger. They had poor cash flow, they were near their debt limit, their retirement expenses were growing. The postmaster general at the time, a man named John Potter, is like, look, you want us to make real money? You've got to ease up on some of these restrictions. The number of letters keeps going down, but we could make up some of the money on packages if you just let us set our own prices. He wanted the Postal Service to be able to make a profit. That's Ruth Goldway, who at the time was a commissioner at the Postal Regulatory Commission. Later, she was the chairwoman. Side note, she was also in the movie Dave. I, I played the Secretary of Education. I had one line. I said, thank you, Mr. President. 
Also, the forever stamp, the one that makes it so you don't have to keep buying one and two cent stamps to keep up with rate increases, that was her idea. I said, gosh, you lose more money selling penny stamps to add on when you change the rates than you would if you just left it the same. Goldway says by the early 2000s, there were signs that the new post office as business wasn't working the same way it had before. In 2000, it lost around $200 million. In 2001, it lost $1.7 billion. If the post office was truly going to be self-sustaining, the shackles had to come off. So, in 2006, Congress passed a new round of postal reforms. And just like the last time in 1970, it was sort of a mixed bag for the post office. They did get to set their own rates for packages, but rate increases for first-class mail now couldn't increase faster than inflation. And there was one very big new requirement that Republicans slipped into the bill at the last minute, a requirement that the Postal Service prepay the costs for its workers' retirement health benefits. So when the final bill came out, there were many of us who were very surprised and said, what is this payment we have to make? Whatever current and former postal workers were going to get in health care benefits after they retired, the Postal Service had to pay for that now. No other government agency and almost no other business puts money away for future health care retiree benefits claims. Starting in 2007, the Postal Service had 10 years, until 2017, to put together this giant pool of money to cover those costs for what would be literally millions of current and former workers. All of a sudden, because of this last-minute addition to the new law, the Postal Service is committed to putting aside $5 billion every year for the next decade. Which, for an organization that was already struggling to turn a profit, is just devastating. For a few years, the post office does pay into this fund. Then in 2011, they just stop. They can't afford to anymore. And now they owe a lot of money. And not just for the weird pre-funding the retirement healthcare benefits thing. On top of that, they also owe tens of billions of dollars for pensions and for workers' compensation. In 2019, that liability totaled $161 billion. That's David Trimble again from the Government Accountability Office. The scale of this is massive. The, the challenge facing them is massive financially. That top line number, $161 billion, that's more than twice the money the post office brought in last year. The current business model is no longer feasible. It's financially not sustainable, and its mission's at risk unless there's significant reforms um, made. It's worth pointing out that if the Postal Service was in fact a company, there would be something it could do. Something that airlines and car manufacturers, these companies with giant obligations to pension funds and health care benefits that they can't afford, something that they do all the time. Declare bankruptcy. Reorganize its finances. Renegotiate with its workers. But in this sense, at least, the Postal Service is not a company. Bankruptcy laws would not be available for the post office to exercise, and really it's, it's up to Congress to address this issue. The series of choices that Congress has made over the last 50 years about how the Postal Service is conceived and what kinds of requirements and limitations should be placed on it, those choices have made the post office a sort of Frankenstein's monster. It's kind of a business, except it has so little control over how it makes money or how it cuts costs. It's kind of a part of the federal government, but except for a few tiny allocations for overseas voting and mail services for the blind, Congress doesn't pay for anything. The Postal Service did get a loan of $10 billion as part of the CARES Act, 
But that's just a loan. They're supposed to pay it back. So that $10 billion doesn't resolve any of the core issues in terms of the, the fundamental challenges facing the post office. That may get you a year or something, but your essential costs are still going to uh, sink that boat. Which brings us back to the new postmaster general and his new cost-cutting measures. After the break, what I like to call the joy of downsizing. Support for NPR and the following message come from TD Ameritrade. You can get smart with your investing with help from knowledgeable professionals, customizable tools, and education designed just for you at TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter. Member SIPC. Hey, y'all. I'm Sam Sanders, host of It's Been a Minute. On my show, we catch you up on all the things in news and culture. The Space Force? I totally missed this. What is the Space Force? Stop it. Stacy, you don't know about the Space no, Force? No. What? I've been in my apartment for four months. <laughs> oh, man. Crushing it, Stacey. <laughs> Thank you. Feeling good. News without the despair. Listen now to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. In June, Louis DeJoy takes over the U.S. Postal Service. He is ready to, in his words, put the institution on a trajectory for success. As you will soon discover, I am direct and decisive, and I don't mince words. And when I see problems, I work to solve them. DeJoy is 63. He was born in Brooklyn, comes from the trucking and logistics industry. When he was younger, he took over his dad's dying truck company out on Long Island and turned it into this massive operation with thousands of employees. A few years ago, he cashed out, sold it for $615 million to a company called XPO Logistics. And DeJoy's approach to the Postal Service seems like exactly the kind of approach a hard-nosed businessman might take with a failing company. Cut costs the bone, don't mince your words. Which is one explanation for why decommissioning sorting machines and cutting back overtime might make some sense. In fact, a lot of these cost-cutting ideas were floating around the Postal Service long before DeJoy got there. But at the very least, as a matter of optics, it does not look great. The president, Donald Trump, has gone on record saying that starving the post office of funding would be a good thing because it would make it harder to vote by mail. Which is why when the new postmaster general committed himself to cutting costs at the post office right away, despite the upcoming election, it set off alarm bells. On Tuesday, DeJoy did back off a little. He released a statement saying he was done with any more big changes. Until after the election. So that's where we are. As we were making this show, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy went in front of the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee and answered a lot of questions, some of them friendly. I just want to kind of go through and uh, give you a chance to respond to some of these false narratives. Some of them not so friendly. Did you conduct any specific analysis on how your changes would Im- impact seniors? Yes or no, sir? So, ma'am, the policy changes that I... Yes or no, sir? On Monday, he will face even more questions when he goes before the House Oversight Committee. So that's the immediate crisis at the Postal Service. But as we were listening, I kept thinking about the conversation I had with David Trimble from the GAO. Trimble's basic point was that the financial problems with the Postal Service go way deeper than you could solve by just cutting back on overtime or taking out some mailboxes. Whatever the solution is, it's not going to come from the office of the Postmaster General. 
It has to come from the same place that created the problem in the first place, Congress. The Congress needs to, to step up and address the, the core policy questions, which is, what is the mission? What are the, what are the core missions we want the Postal Service to provide? And given those missions, how, how are we going to pay for it? Is the post office a service the government provides? Is it a business? Those are political questions. And ultimately, they're going to need political answers. For Democrat Carolyn Maloney, the answer is clear. The bottom line is that the post office is a service, and it is an American service that the American people need. But as a country, we're divided on this just like we are on so many other things. There's a special session in the House on Saturday. They will be talking about what to do about the Postal Service, but not in any permanent fix sort of way. The question at issue will be limited to whether the Postal Service should get some temporary funding to see it through the current crisis. Is your government agency caught in a treacherous no-man's land between public service and private industry? You could send us a letter, but we haven't been back to our office in six months. Alternately, email us at planetmoney at npr.org. We're on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. We are at Planet Money. Today's show was produced by Darian Woods and Liza Yeager. Alex Goldmark is our supervising producer, and Bryant Erstat edits the show. Special thanks to Ryan Ellis, author of Letters, Power Lines, and Other Dangerous Things. If you like this episode, share it with a friend. I'm Keith Romer. And I'm Alexi Horowitz-Ghazi. This is NPR. Thanks for listening.